0: thank you for listening to the make things better podcast in today's episode i was joined by helen milner obe ceo of the good things foundation i learned loads from this episode particularly about the digital divide, who's being excluded why they're excluded and also what the good things foundation are doing to bridge that gap and help those who want to get online get online the audio isn't the best at times in this episode so i can only apologize for that but i do hope you enjoy today's
1: episode Welcome to episode 16 of the Make Things Better podcast. Today, I am joined by Helen Milner, CEO of the Good Things Foundation. So, thanks so much for joining me today, Helen. How are you doing today? I'm
2: really good, thank you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, good to hear. Thank you for coming on. And um, so, I'm really keen to hear about your background first, because so that's going to tie into what we're going to talk about today, which is mostly the digital divide, how attitudes have transformed over the last 30 years or so. So, can we start off by? Finding out a little bit more about you and your background. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Well, I started working in the internet in 1986. So that's a very long time ago. I can't quite work out of that one. um And uh, it's interesting
3: because my whole career I've worked in the internet, but... um I didn't really know it was a special thing. I knew that other people didn't know about it and didn't get it. Um, but it was just the thing I did and the thing I was passionate about. So in the beginning, that was about creating um, content. So this is pre-World Wide Web. Um, so this is content in a walled garden, if you like. Um, it was part of the Times group and it was for schools. Um, and I was like in charge of content and aggregating content to put into that walled garden for schools. Um, and then I moved to University of Sunderland, did a stint before that, did a stint in Australia and looked after some Australian schools doing something similar. And also had a contract with the uh, equivalent the of BT in Japan at the time. Um, and um, just to sort of show how kind of clueless I was that I met someone at a conference who told me about... Uh, the, this is like when the World Wide Web was coming along. And um, they were doing a, a PhD at Stanford University, and they basically described a search engine to me. That's what they were doing for their PhD. Aww. I was going like, "Why do you want that? You know, why would you need that? Like, don't you know everything that's on the internet? You know?" <laughs> so <laughs> it was like I was having those conversations with those people who were thinking about things like search engines. So this
0: was really like early on, wasn't it? it was because as you say, yeah. it was before uh, like World Wide Web. Wow.
3: Yeah. So I mean, obviously the worldwide World Wide Web came in sort of late 80s mm. early 90s it was really beginning to be um, kind of used more fully at that time i was at university of sunderland we um, established a, a Unical learning development unit which was you know, pretty transformational about how do we change the way that students at university um how teaching and learning changes and how technology can support that the, the th- important thing about my career, which is kind of relevant to the digital divide, it's always been about how people use it, it's not been about the technology. Yeah. Um, so I'm not a techie, although obviously I can hold my own with techies, having done it for 30 years. Yeah. Um, and I've always been really excited about what the technology can achieve, but it's always been the people at the heart of it. Mm, mm. Um, and I moved to Sheffield to, um, uh, uh, set up the Learn Direct UFI, which was like an online college, if you like. Um, And then that led me to online centres and to establishing Good Things Foundation.
0: Yeah, so what actually got you started and like interested, like where did the passion come from to get interested in technology and how people use it?
3: I I think I was always excited about the fact that you can reach so many people. and that you can also collaborate. So even back in the 80s, when I was creating content, I didn't want flat content. So I didn't just want it to be about what content can I aggregate and put onto my my instance, if you like, of the internet. I actually brought together school children to collaborate with one another. I did something called World Tour, so I actually brought children together from around the world. Um, and they went, uh, and, I, and I did it over eight weeks, a kind of 80 days kind of concept. Um, and these kids could then learn from one another about how it's different living in, you know, Doncaster, to living in Paris, to living in Alaska, to living in the outback in Australia. And these kids were doing this collaboratively on a collaborative forum um, that, that we had created um, on, our, on our website, I guess you would call it.
0: Do you think that was one of the first times that children had interacted with each other via the internet, like, from around the world then?
3: Oh, definitely! Like, there were some kids who were, were I, the teachers told me, um, they were really upset, they were, like, this kid cried in class because he didn't have a passport, he didn't think he was, he was going to be able to go on this tour, so that they conceptually didn't realise that they weren't actually going anywhere. You know, so that the fact that they could interact with children in other countries over the internet and for it to be so live, I mean, imagine in those days when I, mean, I actually lived in Australia at the end of the 80s and, you know, it cost £5 a minute to make a phone call, right? that if you wanted to correspond with friends and family, you wrote a letter and you put it in the post and it might arrive a week or two later. So this was instant communication across the whole globe. I mean, the funny thing is, because obviously I'm getting on now, obviously, but I sometimes meet people through work who who was one of those kids. So we also did something with John Craven's Newsround, um, which was like an election day. So we had kids all over the country Online doing sort of elections within their schools and then sending their results in so we had like um, It was live on BBC telly um, And we could look at what the results were of what the kids were voting compared to then What actually the parents then voted and I've met I've met You know adults through work who were kids who did world tour and who also took part in John John Craven's, um Election Day.
0: That's amazing. It must be so like interesting to hear about their stories and to kind of reminisce those times from the past
3: yeah i think so and also like you're saying it's the first time they would ever been on the internet and it's the first time they've already felt that kind of power of interacting with other people as well in that um synchronous way um you know doing it real time um but you know we've also got to imagine these were times when they probably weren't even you know, they were, definitely weren't searching for what the weather's going to be like today. Like the, the internet wasn't even an information tool at this point and we were using it as a collaboration tool.
0: Mm. Did you ever envisage the internet getting as big as it is now, like could you even fathom that back then?
3: Yeah definitely, so the, I've got a, a little anecdote, so when my son was born in 1995, um, because I can remember this, is born September 1995. Um, I was sitting in my living room with some friends that had come round to see the baby. Um, and in the corner I had a, a computer, because although I was on maternity leave, of course I work on the internet, so I could just be online all the time and read emails and do, do things. Um, and one of my friends said, well, to, why have you got a computer? Like, what's that for? And I said, well, it's for the internet. And went, oh, that's just a fad. I went, no, in the future, you'll be ordering pizzas takeaway on the internet Um, and that I can remember the like hush in the room like I've got baby brain, you know, that I was a complete idiot and that I was, you know, somehow been, you know, had this kind of fanciful idea that could not possibly be true and it was only when I think back and for me it was so obvious that that was going to happen that, but none of those other people in that room, it was obvious to them. Um, in the same way. So I guess by 1995 it was obvious that the internet was going to be a huge, huge thing.
0: Yeah, but of course some people today are still excluded from that, so do you want to tell us a little bit about the Good Things Foundation and what that's all about?
3: Yeah, so Good Things Foundation, so we're a digital inclusion charity, we're based in Sheffield, Um, we work all across the UK, Uh, we just turned 10 last December Um, Congratulations. Thank you. It was good. It's a real achievement. You know, surviving 10 years. Yeah, I know. That is quite impressive though, seriously. (laughs) Um, Four years ago, we set up a subsidiary in Australia. So, uh, we have a Good Things Foundation Australia as well.
0: Did you choose Australia because you've kind of been there before? Was there any connection there?
3: Yeah, I mean, partly. I think it's um, because I had that understanding of the culture, Mm. I think. Um, but also because we had done a lot of work with the government in the UK, that the Australian federal government, because that's who we got our first big contract with in Australia, the Australian federal government recognised that track record and recognised what we had achieved. Um, so we come uh, national and international, we work with thousands of community organisations up and down the country, and we um, help them to reach digitally excluded people. And we support them with um, devices with co- connectivity and then with the support through that network and we have an online learning platform called learn my way so everything we do for people and for community organizations is free and we do we fund that by working with you know um, big donors or corporates or government departments
0: yeah so I know this sounds like a bit of a there's probably like an obvious answer to this but why is it important to you that people are included in digital?
3: Well, I guess it's really interesting that, you're, that, that you've been talking about the history, right? Because I've always seen that the internet is a, that pathway. So even if you think back in the 80s, taking kids from disadvantaged communities on a tour around the world that they possibly never could have done and probably still couldn't do um, without the internet, like the opportunities and the... Um, Benefits of using the internet are so huge, um, and I think sometimes for those of us who use the internet just, you know, instinctively every single day, I don't think we really understand how powerful that is for us. Um, that if you're not online, you can't apply for work really, yeah? mm. you can't apply for benefits. Um, the pandemic, of course, massively put this into stark relief that we helped so many people during the pandemic, so we helped 22,000 people with a device data and support, um, and some of them needed to apply for work, some of them needed to you know, look after their health, apply for medicines, um, do online consultations with, with um, medical professionals, but every single person that we helped, they said the main thing they needed was contact with other people. So actually, we definitely use it for information, we definitely use it for transactions. Services are much more efficient, much more convenient, but actually that fundamental contact. I once met a woman who um, told me she lived in Rotherham actually, and her mum lives in Grimsby. And they saw each other for the first time on Mother's Day over the internet. So quite often we talk about people who have got relatives in Australia or whatever, but sometimes if actually you don't have a lot of money and you don't actually own a car or you don't have transport, sometimes those connections could be as little as a couple of hundred miles in the same country. So I think we just massively take it for granted. Um, and the other thing that happened during the pandemic is so many services, public services, commercial offers, even of the, the services that charities provide went online, because that was the easiest and sometimes the only way to deliver it. So if you weren't online, if you don't have a device, if you can't afford the internet and you don't have the skills to use it, then you're just cut off from that.
0: Yeah. So do you think, this is a bit of a more abstract question in a way, but do you think people are more or less connected now in the world because of the internet?
3: You mean with one another? Yeah. I think they're more connected. But I think, behind your question maybe, is the fact that we have a digital divide. Mm. And as that digital divide narrows, it deepens. Mm. So the people who are left behind are left further behind. So if everybody who's designing services, who's designing products, who's designing offers, fancy new tools, if they're not understanding that there are people who can't use those, who are cut off from them, it's Mm. like they're invisible actually and i think that's partly um, that you know i'm i'm not i'm proud about it but we before the pandemic we mostly we worked around skills we helped um, community organizations to help local digitally excluded people to get those basic digital skills they need to thrive in the world but as soon as the pandemic struck like in march of 2020 we realized that when those physical places those community centers those libraries, those small local charities had to close their doors, then they no longer had access to the internet. And so um, the, the need to have a personal device, maybe a phone or a tablet or a laptop, and then that connection to the internet became so, so critical. But that was invisible to me. I didn't know that there were so many millions of people who relied on those public internet spots um, or, or those community centres to actually just do the basics of being on the internet.
0: How do you go about discovering that? Because for me I just like, I feel like I'm very oblivious to the fact that so many people are not part of the internet because obviously on the internet you would never see anyone who's not on the internet, like of course you wouldn't because that's impossible, Um, so how do you go about like finding out that a lot of people are only using um, the internet in you know like libraries and so on?
3: So I think that's why I love the model that we have, is because we work with thousands of community organisations. So absolutely in the heart of their community. So. They don't work at like, local authority level, they work at street level. They know those people on the street, they often will. So it might be a small local charities that work with local older people or local uh, people with English second language or people who have a disability or just a general community centre that reflects the people in that community. So that they know that there are people who potentially are already using their services who are district excluded. And so we always think that digital inclusion so the activity of helping people to get those skills and to get that access um, is best when it's embedded into the other work that you're doing um i think though you're right i mean I, i sometimes think of it a bit like a ghetto right is that if you think about your family and friends your colleagues everybody's on the internet but therefore, that's why I find that I'm really lucky that I can go and visit these communities and I can talk to people who don't have the internet. I, before the pandemic, was um, in a in a community center, a really amazing charity in South London, and there were 13 people there who were using the service and using Learn My Way and, you know, having a really great time learning about the internet. And I asked them, how many of you have a phone, a mobile phone? Three of them had a phone and they got them out of their pocket and showed me. Only one of them was a smartphone. So this was 2019. 13 people, three had a phone, only one had a smartphone. I said, do any of you have a laptop or a computer or a tablet or anything like that at home? And the woman who had the smartphone also had a laptop. So 12 people had nothing. One woman had a smartphone and she also had a laptop. And so that's the thing is that I was, I was still shocked, Right, this is my job, this is like what I live and breathe every single day. And I was still shocked at that what a small percentage of those 13 people had any kind of device. Um, and affordability is a massive, massive issue.
0: Yeah, and do you find that usually those who are excluded and, and not using digital already... Do you think most of them want to or do you come across people who actually have chosen not to?
3: Well the data says that about 42% of the people who aren't using the internet say they're not interested and it's not for them. Um, we did do some um, other research to get under the hood of that and we found that there were, you know, trust is quite a big issue, they don't trust it. You know, there's quite a lot on the on, on the news about you know identity theft and um, uh, financial risks um, and uh, so but that still means more than half want to do it right um, that you know and that's again the beauty of the good things model where we work with local community organizations because they can reach those people and again the people who um, are digitally excluded um, Uh, like 65% of them say that they would get help if they knew it was there and 35% say they want local support. So actually, it feels like a perfect solution, doesn't it, is that they want local support if they knew it was there. Uh, We have local support um, and more than half of those people who are offline want want to learn.
0: Yeah, so some of the main barriers then is obviously money that's going to be one of the main ones but then also the trust and then the education and i guess for a lot of people if you don't have the money already and you're a little bit less trusting of it then you've got two like really strong reasons not to because you're not going to have the luxury of being able yeah. to even take the risk and you know have a chance on something
3: yeah, yeah well one thing that we did during lockdown though but i think this is what i'm really passionate now about bringing that the bundle of the device and the connectivity and the support all together. So during lockdown, we helped thousands of people who would never used the internet before because we could say, here is a tablet, um, it has a SIM card in it, that connects you to the internet. Here's a local person who will support you, you know, their name is X. Um, and that And that person X actually brings it to your door puts it on your doorstep, takes a step back, rings the bell, has a social distance conversation and then they say I'll give you a call or I'll um, just, what will happen is it will buzz, just press yes and off you go. What they would, our local community partners were doing, they were actually teaching people how to use the internet from the very first time they ever touched a device, they were on Zoom. And they were using Zoom to learn how to use the internet. So, again, pre-pandemic, we would have said that was impossible to do. But actually, they were getting really intensive, wonderful, informal, local support, but with that device. So, by bringing that package together, we're now working with um, uh, Virgin Media O2, Vodafone and 3. um, And by them coming together, we've created a national data bank. And we've got half a million SIMs, so we can help half a million people to get free connectivity, mobile connectivity through that. So now we're calling on companies to give us their old kits, their old devices, their old technology. And so we can bundle that together and get it out to digitally excluded people in communities. And our biggest problem is we know the demand is so huge, we've got to get those devices out of those corporate cupboards and drawers. And get them refurbished and into the hands of the people who need them, because we need—we know that demand is still so, so high, and it really has to be met. And it just feels like, you know, the UK is the fifth wealthiest country in the world, no matter what our politicians tell us. Is that we should be able to support those people who can't afford it um, with a good, you know, good quality. I'm not talking about rubbish quality. Good quality, pre-loved technology. Um, the connectivity through our national data bank and that support through our national digital inclusion network.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned there about, you know, there is a lot of people in this country who probably are on, well, they just are on, like, way lower standards of living than others because there's huge inequality here. Um, and who would you say is sort of, like, negatively impacted by Digital the most, or like who's the most excluded? Yeah. Is there certain like groups? Because I think there's a bit of a misconception that it's just the old people who aren't yeah, on tech. But that's right. Like, I mean,
3: I mean, some older people are, but there's a massive correlation in the UK between um, household income and digital exclusion. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So saying. even if you're an older person, um, then you, if you, for example, have a, a decent household income, or even you know if you're a woman in your 80s and you've got a university degree 99% will have a, will be on the internet wow. right so the correlation between education attainment um and household income is actually much more important than age having said all of that clearly we've got older people who are um who have low incomes right we've got um 2 billion in pension credit that's not been claimed Right, so that means there are pensioners all over the country who are eligible because their income is so low to get a pension credit benefit from the state, but don't claim it. Um, so for them, buying broadband may well feel out of their reach, even if they wanted to do that. Um, uh, the older you are, obviously, you definitely didn't do it at school, and you might not even have used the internet in your career. So the you, they may feel the barrier to entry is much higher for them um and also you know and i have some (laughs) i i understand this one probably the most is that you know if you're in your 70s or 80s and you've never used the internet and you've got a pretty nice life already like you're happy then you know it probably feels like why would i bother you know and you can kind of think well if you're happy and you've got everything that you need i mean i would always say that i think there's Benefits for you. Uh, One chap we had some um, a digital champion. He got online when he was 91, and it made such a massive difference to him. He became like a real evangelist, and he was out encouraging all of his friends and family. Everyone at the golf course, he said, um, to actually get on the internet. So you know, it's also never too late to learn, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, that's that's a great story that you've got someone who's 91 still, you know, getting on the internet, I guess, yeah, is literally, you're never too late to get involved.
3: But when you bring the devices and data in though as well, it's clearly, um, a lot of it is about affordability. Mm. So that, um, that it's important to understand that um, that is the underpinning reason for digital exclusion. Um, that uh, people who are disabled are also more likely than people who are not disabled um, to not use the internet. But again, um, also if you're disabled, you're more likely to not have a job, right? So that these things are um, compounded, you know, the intersectionality of different disadvantages. But but, but talking about benefits, if you're um, on a low income or from a disadvantaged community, you're much more likely to experience health inequalities. The government is spending billions on digital health services, but actually the people who are most likely to need them the most are more likely to be digitally excluded. So you know, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out, therefore investment in digital inclusion will actually help to realise the benefits in investment in digital services.
0: Yeah, and I imagine investment in digital inclusion is going to really contribute to just general Equality.
3: Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I'm with you on that. I mean, I that we definitely have the economic arguments. So we know the investment in full digital inclusion for every pound spent, you get a 14 pounds 80 return. Not bad. Not bad at all. <laughs> so, you know, the economic arguments are there, but I believe that it's a now a case of equity. That mm. if you want to be on the internet, if you, um, you know, if, if, if you want to be on the internet to be the same as everybody else, that it's just a basic equity issue. Um, you know, some people say that the internet should is a human right or is should be treated like a utility. Um, so there are some of the things that we're actually exploring. We have a data poverty lab um, and we've just actually launched a search for some fellowships. Um, so and one of those is actually should the internet be treated like a utility or a human right or something else. Um, So, uh, that's really exciting, so we're looking for people to apply for those fellowships now.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because if we look back to how this conversation started, you were talking about almost being dismissed by saying that you're going to be ordering pizza through the internet in the future and now it's like almost becoming a human right, which is incredible. So, over the last 30 or even like coming up to like 40 years soon, um, how have attitudes towards the internet changed, obviously we've touched on this a little bit, but what has been like some of the main things that you've seen in your time?
3: Well even if I just think career wise, 20 years ago, um, when the sort of the concept of having a a place in every community where people can go to use the internet, um, this is a policy politician um, um, desire, um, is that uh, only a third of people use the internet. So this is 20 years ago, right? right? So, not even that long ago. Not even that long ago, no. Yeah. The, so only a third of people use the internet. Also at that time, it was also really expensive, like you couldn't really buy a computer for less than a thousand pounds, right? So it was also, the market wasn't really there. Um,
2: so the internet is almost invisible now, I think, to many people who use it, you know, use it on the go, use it at home on your smart TV, use it on your, you know, your Alexa or your Google Assistant that obviously, you know, at work and sending out your podcasts, that that, um, the internet is everywhere. We almost don't talk about it because it feels so ubiquitous that actually to understand that it's ubiquitous in availability, and I'm sure people in rural areas will tell us that it's not ubiquitous, that that they still don't have choice of supplier and in some places they still not very good, Um, but actually it feels ubiquitous. Um, Therefore, we are excluding people from it. Because actually, if we're designing our society with the assumption that everybody is able to use the internet in many different ways, in mobile with smart devices, then actually we're just leaving people further and further behind if we don't understand that either we have a we we have a, a duty as a society to pay for people to do to be on the internet if they can't afford it or we we're just blind blind mm. to the fact that it's such a big problem.
1: Yeah. I suppose as people are starting to take it for granted and it's just becoming obviously a subconscious habit to use the internet almost all the time now for a lot of people and because it is becoming invisible I guess it then becomes a lot lot easier to forget about the ways in which we're excluding people and I'm sure there's so many ways that people are creating things in the world and setting things up and just being completely oblivious to the fact that some people just won't ever see this stuff and won't ever take part in it even with this podcast there's going to be people out there who will never have the opportunity to even watch this whether they want to or not they probably won't but even (laughs) if they wanted to you know they're not going to have that opportunity but that's something that would never really even like cross my consciousness really until this conversation so it's really good to kind of get that message out there
2: the good news though is that um, people who are designing you know your your doctor's surgery or uh, well, I was interviewed by Yours magazine recently. Like that's going to go on in a magazine that will go into the yeah. hands of older older women mostly. Um, is that that there are people who do see and understand that there are visually
1: people. Everyone in- at the Good Things Foundation, clearly. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, everyone at the Good Things Foundation, and and I think that um, as long as we keep them in mind, I mean. Obviously, that, that you know, as we've as we've been talking, that um, I'm very excited about the potential of the internet, with the potential to bring huge benefits and huge opportunities for people. I just don't want to leave anybody behind, really, and that's what my mission is.
1: Yeah, now, it's, it's great that you've got that mission. Cause it's such an important one, and as you said, it just yeah, is really correlates to just equality in general, uh, which is such a huge thing. So my final question for you, and it's been great chatting, is uh, what can people do to make things better and you can this however you like?
2: Well, number one, know that people exist who don't use the internet. There's 10 million people who don't have the skills to use the internet in any kind of functional way. There's at least 2 million people who can't afford to be online, can't mm. afford an internet connection. That's, that's in the UK. The- that's in the UK, yeah. yeah. So um, just know that they're there. Um, if anyone's designing services, keep them in mind. But, you know, my real rallying cry would say, you know, search out the Good Things Foundation and help us to get the people who want to be online online, because that's the best way that we'll close the digital divide and make sure that everybody who wants to be and everybody who's able can actually have that opportunity and enjoy those benefits like we do. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for
1: your time. We really Thank do you. appreciate it. Uh, Thank you to everyone watching or listening, and I do hope you have an amazing rest of your day.